those who want my vindication shout for joy and be glad. Let them continually say, the Lord be exalted. He takes pleasure in his servant's well-being, and my tongue will proclaim your righteousness, your praise all day long. That's what we've come together to do. Let's worship together.
feet and let's sing together. Let's make this our prayer. Oh, great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme, conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy Lord. You have loved and purged me, make me
church. I uh, was hoping to catch Brother Dobbins and ask him, the last time that I had preached here, I made it clear that a pastor lives out a sermon the week leading up to when he preaches, and, and uh, I think it was at that time he said, well, we're going to make Derek preach on marriage the week of, of uh, Valentine's Day, so we'll, uh, we'll have to catch him next time and ask him about that. Uh, but we will be going through the same text that Sean went through last week. That is Genesis 2, 18 through 25. And your pew Bibles is on page 2. So we started at the beginning of this year preaching through the Bible. We've made it all the way to page 2. And I'm told that we'll be able to catch up with the rest of the last part of the year. So please turn with me and read. Uh, read along with me in your minds. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. And this is why a father, or man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Let us pray. Lord, as we wade through your word today, to hear a word from you on how marriage was designed and intended to, to be. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to hear from you, to submit to you, to learn from you. Lord, I pray that my words today would not be a yoke put upon people, but words of grace that would show them the way that you had designed our lives to be. Lord, I pray for those that are not married or not yet married, that they would hear your words of truth and take it deep into their hearts so that those that may desire to marriage, marry one day would, would know what marriage should look like and be preparing themselves for that. Lord, for those that are single and that will remain single among us, I thank you for them. I pray, Lord, that this would not give them some, some false law that lays expectations on them that you would not have of them. And Lord, for those of us here today that are married and in need of your grace and mercy upon our lives, I pray, God, that today would be a day of transformation for us, that your Holy Spirit would challenge us Plant that word deep inside of us so that we may be conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ, that we may reflect the gospel of Christ in our marriages. God, I pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as, as we dig into Genesis 2, 18 through 25 to learn about God's design for marriage, I want to call us back to the, the context here. Oftentimes in today's world, we look at marriage and we've got a view of marriage that we only see through the lens of a fallen world, through a sinful world. God's original design for marriage happened in the garden before sin had entered the world. And so as we talk about and think about the design for marriage that God put in place in the garden, Listen to the words of the Lord. If you remember back in, in, in Genesis 1.31, after the full completion of creation had occurred, he said, it is very good. It is very good. And this is a stark contrast with what we see at the beginning of today's text. In 2.18, he says, it is not good for man to be alone. So there was a period throughout creation, in the midst of creation, where God paused and says, I'm not done yet. It is not good to stop here. It is not good 
to leave man alone. And we can all agree with this text. In fact, I quote this text to Heidi anytime she tries to leave me with the kids. I say, it is not good for man to be alone. You all have seen the Facebook post, you know. I, I, I open up the fridge door and I can't find the ketchup when it's in the very front of the fridge just looking at me. God knew that I needed a helpmate. But this text, pre-fall, was a pre-fall institution. Before the suffering, before the pain, before the sin. So all the bad PR around modern day marriages and, and the many jokes that come about around how marriage is or the, the old ball and chain, as some may call it, this is not God's intention. God's intention for marriage was taking man from a state of being not good to a full creation picture of being very good from the beginning. There's popular videos going around today if you watch some of the YouTube shorts or Facebook shorts, and, and it'll show someone with, with a container of some sort, maybe ketchup, and, and, and they're trying to fill up the container, and so they'll take a, a bottle like this, and they'll hold that under the, the water spigot, and the water will just splash and go everywhere, and then it'll show a helpful boss coming along and coaching them and just shaking that finger at them, I'm going to help you out here, and, and they'll take the... The, the lid off or something, and then just place it like that. And then you fill it up like that, and it'll show just even more and more chaos and a mess because we're not using the, the container or the funnel as God had intended it. And while that, that picture, that video is hilarious, it is sad that that is what we see in marriage most frequently today. We see two very ill-equipped people joining together in a covenantal union having no idea what they're doing. And as chaos ensues, they are then surrounded by peers that also have no idea what they're doing, trying to coach them. And in many cases, we see marriage be destroyed because the only advice that comes about is the suggestion that, well, this, this marriage is incompatible. There's an incompatibility here. So the only way to, to fix this is just to give up. When we look at the role models that we have in media today, I want you to think back to the many TV shows, and as funny as many of them are, can you name one TV show that had a responsible, intelligent, capable man leading and sacrificially loving his family, all the while his wife following him in submission and lovingly supporting him? It's just not there. It's just not there. We commonly see these lazy buffoons stumbling around in a fog of their own incompetence. All the while, the wife is there, and she is the one doing the leading, the caring, and the provision, and, and, and all of the guidance, and there's constant conflict and tension in the marriage. And the only peace that the marriage has is when the Marriage partners are absent from one another with groups of friends complaining about their partner to the friends. This is the picture of marriage that we see in media, and it is not God's original design. God did not design us to function in that way. So if we are to function in the way that God has designed us, we must ask the question, just like Sean asked a few weeks ago, God, am I doing my marriage my way or God's way? Am I doing my marriage?
language, the way that the TV promotes or, or social media may promote or my friends may say, or am I doing my marriage God's way? And if we are doing marriage God's way according to his design, we're going to see that the biblical design of marriage contains a suitable helper, a sacrificial provider coming together in a covenantal union. That is a suitable helper, a sacrificial provider coming together in a covenantal union. Look with me in verse 18 of Genesis. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. That word corresponding to him. This means this was not just any helper or a random helper. In fact, God had created every animal of creation across the path of man. And nope, nope, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. He needed a suitable helper, a helper that was fit for him, a helper that would complement him in all of his weaknesses to be the full completion. And this helper, you'll see, that God had made... In order, so he made man, then woman, he made them in order, and he made them to bring about order in the home. And he did it so that there would be a chain of command that would follow God's orders. This text emphasizes, and this is very uncomfortable topic in today's culture. We hear someone talking about wife's submission to the man and male leadership in the home and it brings about all of the battle wounds from cultures wars against the original design of marriage and I think this has happened for two main reasons one we see this this kind of false narrative or this characterization of marriage where this male leader is this evil despotic king sitting on his recliner barking out orders at his wife and telling his wife, go fetch this and do this. And all the while, she's just submissively running around, hair on fire, not able to share an opinion, not able to... So this characterization of, of well, that's what the Bible teaches about marriage, and it's a mischaracterization of that. But the other reason that I think marriage has been so under attack is because Christian men are not fighting back. Many Christian men in today's society, perhaps some today in this church have sat there just like the first Adam, just like the first Adam with a remote control or a video game controller in a hand with a beer in the other and just watched the serpent turn their marriage into chaos. They just sat back in apathy. So many families that have not been demolished by this anti-biblical teaching against God's marriage design, they're in despair. While the women carry the curse of leading protecting and providing their families while the boys that they're married to just hang out, coast through life without fulfilling their God-given role, their God-given role in the hand, they're in the home. God made man, then woman, in an order to establish order so that a chain of command be put in place to follow God's orders. We see that the suitable helper was made in order. 1 Timothy 2 calls this out. Adam was formed first and then Eve. And this argument was made in 1 Timothy to tell the church how they are to order leadership in the church. And it used a 
it was very good. The order was to establish order. The home without the woman completing the man is a home that can feel the absence and the missing pieces. And the suitable helper in the woman was made to establish order. You see in the next section of the first Corinthians text, neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man, to complete and help him. The suitable helper was designed second in order to complete that order of the home. And we read examples of this in Proverbs 31. The Proverbs 31 woman was keeping her family clothed, keeping her family well fed, speaking words of wisdom and kindness into her family. Proverbs 14.1 speaks of this wise woman that builds her home up and organizes her home, develops it, rather than the foolish woman, in contrast, that tears it down and tears it apart. How many here today feel that your homes may not be in order? May today be a day of repentance and rejoicing because God grants us grace upon grace, mercy, forgiveness, redemption. He puts us back together. And we're going to go through some text here. Ephesians 5, through 24 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. He is Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. This chain of events or chain of command does not leave man as some despotic king without any accountability. It says Christ is head of the church. Christ is head of the man. The man has accountability in the government, in his earthly masters, in the, the, the leaders of the church. But there is a part of a command in which the man is the leader, the woman is the follower. And we see here in 1 Peter 3.6, the example Sarah brought up. 1 Peter 3.6, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you have become her children when you do what is good and you do not fear any intimidation. Now, the common objection to male headship and male leadership is, what if my man is a buffoon? Sisters, he is. I am. We are. We are a buffoon. We need you. We need you to follow us. We need you to prop us up. We need you to help win us over without words, as the text says. It says, Sarah obeyed Abraham. Let me tell you a little story about Sarah and Abraham. This comes from... Genesis 12, Genesis 12, 11 through 16, if you're following along. It says, when he or when Abraham was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, Sarah, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Oh, that's kind, saying how beautiful she is. When the Egyptians see you, they're going to say, this is his wife, and they're going to kill me but let you live. So please say to, say to them that you are my sister so that it will go well for me because of you and my life will be spared on your account. Now that does not make for a good Valentine's Day card. You are beautiful, so tell people that you're my sister so they don't kill me. Okay? When Abram entered, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians did see, they saw that she was a very beautiful woman. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. So the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. Pharaoh said, mine, she's mine. And he treated Abram well because of her. And Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves and camels. So Abraham handed his wife over to the Egyptians. That was buffoonery. And he prospered because of it. 
He grew in wealth and stature because of it. He was a buffoon. But Sarah is held up as the example of a godly wife, a godly example of submission. Ladies, yes, you are to submit to your husbands. And Sarah even called Abraham Lord. But her trust was not in Abraham's lordship. Her trust was in the Lord of Lords. Her trust was in God who was sovereign over all. And 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2, it says, In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure and reverent lives. So sisters, I, I want you to remember this. We're going to get into the next text where we talk about sacrificial providers. And we're going to speak to how a sacrificial provider should lead his family. This is not a time for swinging of elbows or side glances, but living pure, reverent lives win us over without words. And if you're committed, sisters, to using words, let's go to Titus 2 and see how we're supposed to use those words. Titus 2 says, in the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. The call to women is to help raise up other godly women. As I referenced earlier, the common problem in marriage is two folks getting together having no idea what God's original design is and then being surrounded by people that also have no idea what God's original design is and trying to influence and coach and guide that marriage, ultimately resulting in a path of destruction. So as a community of believers, we are to come around each other and guide each other to operate by God's original design. The woman's role in marriage is to be that suitable helper established in the garden pre-fall, before sin, to bring order into the union and to take the condition of creation from not good to very good. A God-designed marriage has a suitable helper, but not just the suitable helper. It has the sacrificial provider. We read of this in Genesis, Genesis 2, 21 through 23, in the next section. The husband's role of sacrificial provider was established in the garden when the woman was made from man. Man sacrificed his own flesh, a picture of Christ's sacrifice of his own flesh for his bride. Let's read Genesis 2, 21 through 23. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and enclosed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last, at last, is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. Now in many of the biblical accounts on marriage, we read of, of the, the first sections on wifely submission. But we don't always spend enough time looking and deeply considering God's design for the man that she is designed to obey, the man that she is designed to follow. Yes, this, 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 she is designed to obey and follow, but this sacrificial provider is one that provides sacrificially 
provides love, provides loyalty, and provides leadership. In the provision of love, we read in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands, love your wife, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, one of the often quoted, and I would say frequently forgotten texts from wedding ceremonies is the text that defines what this love looks like. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, we read, Love is patient. Brothers, are you patient with your wives? It says, Love is kind. Brothers, are you kind to your wives? It is not self-seeking. Brothers, is your leadership and your care and love for your wife is it easily seen as being selfless? It is not irritable, brothers. Do you get irritated by your wife? That's not love. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Are you constantly steaming and thinking about the ways in which she has mistreated you or uh, things you're upset about? Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness but rejoices in truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things, endures all things. This sacrificial provider provides love. And as I read through this text, any woman would say, any woman that would bristle about obedience or, or submission would say, oh, well, that's not so bad. I can follow a man like that. He's selfless. He's not self-seeking. He's not irritable. He's not rude. He's kind. The sacrificial provider provides love defined as being patient. King James Version says, love suffereth long. This love is willing to undergo suffering joyfully because it is the calling of the husband. It's not envious of other husbands. Well, their wife does this. It's not envious of other families' lifestyles, but it's, it's grateful, it's joyful, it's content with the helpmate that they've been provided with. It bears all things and believes all things. This means, brothers, you will think the best of intentions of your wife. When she makes a comment or has a sigh or a side look, you're going to assume at that moment the very best of intentions. You will think of your wives in the best light possible. And you're going to be willing to joyfully endure and bear through when things do not go your way. Brothers, if you're to grade yourselves on the provision of love to your wives, are we loving our wives as Christ loved the church? Are you loving your wife as Christ loves you? Are you holding on to your own desires for comfort, for selfish ambition, for your own pleasure above her, forcing her through your own apathy to carry burdens that only you were designed to carry, critical of her for not pleasing your selfish desires. Brothers, love your wives. Sacrificial provider provides love. And it also provides loyalty. When we think about loyalty, we, we, we think of it as, as very kind of surface level. Well, is this man running around on his wife? Is he down at the bar with, with some floozies? Is, is this man bouncing around from hotel rooms? But in today's culture, Biblical loyalty is not normal. 
so objectified women through pornography and advertisements and, and the, the marketing machine that says that sex sells. So yeah, men may not be running from hotel, from hotel room. They may not be serial dating folks in the office while the wife is at home with the children. But brothers, what if we looked at your cell phone history? The videos you've watched, the pictures you've seen. What about the side gaze that you may glance over at a magazine as you're checking out in the checkout line? Or let your eyes linger on a billboard or a commercial that it should not be lingering on? Brothers, that is not loyalty. That is adultery. We read in Matthew 5, 27-28, You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Brothers, we're called to a higher standard than what the culture holds us to. We're called to love and be loyal to our wives. In Proverbs 5, 15 through 18, it speaks of this. It says, drink water from your own cistern. Water flowing from your own wells. Should your springs flow into the streets, streams into the public squares? They should be for you alone and not for you to share with strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. Brothers, we don't just provide love and loyalty. We are, we are to provide leadership. And as we think about what this leadership looks like, we saw in the text, Paul and Peter said that wives are to submit and obey to the husband. But they also call the husband to lead with a selfless purpose. Brothers, you're not to lead your wife to serve your selfish desires but to do what's best for her, to do what's best for your family. You carry the burden and will one day answer to God for your leadership or lack thereof. Paul writes in Ephesians the direction of this leadership. In Ephesians 5.26, the direction of it is to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. Brothers, are you leading your family in family worship and devotion? It's your calling. You were designed for this. The design of the man for leadership is often brushed aside and ignored in today's culture, in part because of the false narrative of characterization, others because of the general apathy of, of husband. Have you pushed your wife into a leadership role to bear a burden that she wasn't designed to bear because you simply do not want to be bothered? Or are you afraid that you'll fail at it? Well, you were designed for it. You will fail. But Christ forgives, and you should lead. Biblical leadership is sacrificial. Biblical leadership takes initiative and leads the family in holy living. You see in the very next section of Ephesians that Paul tells children, says, children, obey your parents, mentioning both. It says, honor your father and mother, mentioning both. And then it narrows it down to just fathers. It says, fathers... You are the one responsible for the instruction and discipline of your children. This leadership falls on the man. And this sacrificial picture of Christ's leadership with his family, or the man's leadership to his family, is described by C.S. Lewis here. It says, this headship then is most fully embodied, not in the husband we should all wish to be. That despotic, I get everything I want 
But in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion, whose wife receives the most but gives the least, is most unworthy of him, yet in her own mere nature, but in the least lovable. For the church has no beauty, but what the bridegroom gives her. He does not find, but makes her love. And we often speak in, in evangelism training here and from the pulpit of these three circles, these three circles of evangelism. First, God's original design. And we see that design for marriage, this perfect, peaceful union. All of the gears were connected and working well together. In the second circle, we see through the line of sin that we have fallen into a state of chaos and brokenness. And in that second circle is where we try to prop up false gods or false gospels, things that can fix our marriage. You can go to any bookstore today or browse Amazon and you will see book after book after book on how to fix marriages and, and, and how to restore the brokenness and, and how to set up the right boundaries. And we often ver veer off the path of God's original design and find ourselves deeper and deeper into brokenness. But the third circle, the third circle, Christ came, lived the life that we could not live. Obeyed God in the ways that we could not obey and did not obey. So that he could die the death that we deserved. And grant us the eternal life. And the path from that third circle back up to God's original design. Is our pursuit of putting in place all of the right order and right design. That have been destroyed by sin's brokenness. And then we ask folks. On that cycle of circles, where do you find yourself? Where do you find your marriage? If your marriage is in the circle of brokenness, have hope. It doesn't have to stay there. In Christ, we can restore the original design. And if your marriage is on the path towards original design, but going slow... And veering off, have hope, persevere, follow Christ, turn it over to Christ. It is in Christ and in Christ alone where marriages can find their full fulfillment. They can fulfill and come back to their state of covenantal union. So as we mentioned, a marriage is a suitable helpmate. And a sacrificial provider coming together into a covenantal union. And a covenantal union, this is where we see husbands and wives, they leave their parents and they cleave to each other. Or they become one. Oftentimes in marriage ceremonies, this is done with a unity candle. We have the parents of each of the couples up there. They light the unity candle, or they, they, they light the two candles on the side. Then at some point in the ceremony, they tilt the candles in. Two flames become one flame, and that is symbolic of the union of marriage. That oneness in marriage is multifaceted. It's applicable in all kinds of different ways. So because we all have lunches to get to, I'm not going to list them all. But I do want to highlight at least three of them. Three of the ways this covenantal union is made manifest or expressed. One is financially. 
One is in faith, and one is physically. First, let's speak financially. In the background, thinking about what Jesus said, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. They are united financially. Back in Genesis 2.24, it says, This is why a man leaves his father and mother, mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, in, in, the, in the ancient times, it was very common for the father or the patriarch of the family to be the owner of all of the property. The provider of all of that property would be used so that the family would flourish. And at a time when a son would leave his family, the son would start building his own property, his own way to make a living, and come together with his wife. So when it says that they would leave the father and mother and bond with the, the wife, many times in the ancient text, in the Old Testament, it would describe this bride price. And we, we look back at that and we think, well, that's just so old-fashioned, like women were pieces of property that could be bought. But that's not the, the Old Testament bride price. The Old Testament bride price was a promise. It was the showing that that man would sacrificially provide for that woman, that they would be one finance that they would not have to rely on his father or his parents or other people so that others would have undue influence in that marriage. So the man left the father became one with the wife. We see this echoed in Ephesians 5.31-33 in the New Testament. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and his wife is to respect her husband. So that leaving and cleaving was a financial union. It means one bank account. It means one set of bills. It means one set of debt. There is not separation financially in the marriage. But it's not just financial, it's ultimately in faith. We read of this in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16. Do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? Now this text speaks to a very broad spectrum of partnerships. But marriage is one of the most intimate and pinnacle of Partnerships. These are partners united, and they should be united in faith, serving God together, encouraging one another in the Lord, praying for one another, living out their faith together. That's why in many marriage ceremonies, they often quote the passage from Ruth. Ruth was, was a, a pagan from a pagan nation. She had a sister, both Moabites, and they married into a Jewish family. And Ruth said to Naomi after the brothers passed, he said, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. And this was in contrast with her sister. Her sister, when faced with that same question, it said her sister went back to her people and her gods. And so this text, your people will be my people, your God, my God, is used in marriage ceremonies to symbolize this union of the husband and the wife into one faith. One faith following the one true God. 
turning your lives over to Christ, turning your marriage over to Him. So marriage, we see a union financially, we see a union in faith, but also a union physically. A union physically. In 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5, a husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. Some translations say conjugal duty to his wife. And likewise, a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, the husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time so to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, if you're studying marriage texts side by side, you see the text in Peter. You see two of Paul's letters to the Ephesians and Colossians. Each one of these letters, they always start addressing the women. Wives submit, wives obey, and then they go to the men. And they say, men, love your wives. But this, this text is different. This text flips the order. It starts with a husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons that, that this is, is shown in this way is because the modern day picture of physical intimacy in marriage is often very one-sided. It's often very husband-centered. And it may occur as a result of the, the husband pouting around or complaining for a period of time until the wife gives in. And, oh, I guess I got to. But it's certainly not the picture of God's design of marriage. God's design of marriage and physical intimacy is selfless. Is seeking the other first. Looking to satisfy the other. You'll notice the physical intimacy was not just created for procreation. It was created for marriage to be enjoyed. A selfless fulfillment of duties towards the other person. So we listen to each other. We learn each other. We learn from each other. We serve each other physically, selflessly, becoming one. As the author of Proverbs says, take pleasure. Now, my prayer is that as we've looked at God's design for marriage today, that you've not seen this as some matter of tit for tat, quid pro quo. Well, when they start doing their job, I'll start doing mine. Marriage is two one-way on-ramps. All those on-ramps going towards God's design. So if one is outpacing the other, keep going. You'll see God's design for marriage has the suitable helper coming in, designed in an order to establish order, following a chain of command to follow Christ's orders. The sacrificial provider providing love, loyalty, leadership, and coming together in a covenantal union where there's one in finances, there's one in faith, and one physically. Now, a statistic that you're not going to have to fact check 100% of marriages have trouble. There is not a marriage in this room that does not have some sort of trouble and pain and sin. We are a fallen people that live in a fallen world. When two sinners come together and say, I do, they do not walk out the back of the church and automatically stop sinning. That's actually when God's sanctification process may kick it up a notch. So to follow and to truly follow God's design in marriage, we must, we must get really good at seeking and granting forgiveness. 
admonition to those who need the admonition, but also as a sign of grace to those who need the hope. Lord, that you do not leave us alone, but you equip us to follow your will. Lord, I pray that you would protect the marriages in this room. Lord, that you would bring sin to light, sanctify those, and bless us with a, a, a joyful marriage where we can truly experience the gospel of grace in our lives every day. It's in Jesus' name that I ask these things. Amen. Would you stand to your feet and let's respond together in hope and faith. When Christ is ours forever.
You have called us out of darkest night into your glorious light, that we may sing the wonders of the risen Christ. May our every breath we tell the grace that broke into our strife. the Lord. 